In our study of the book of Luke, we now come to the burial of Jesus. And it is, surprisingly, of significant importance. We talk about the crucifixion a lot. We talk about the resurrection a lot. But right in the middle is Jesus being buried, and we just kind of seem to hurry along through there. So I wanted to take some time and really just go through the scriptures and see how many things there were that spoke about the burial of Jesus and how it relates to you and I. Because the Bible says we were buried with him. So what does that mean? He was buried. If we were buried with him, then what does that mean? What's the application to that for you and me? So I wanted to start with one of the oldest church creeds before there were actual written New Testament. There were creeds in order to keep the church balanced and centered on what Christianity was all about. And we know those creeds when we see them in the Bible because of the way that they are worded. Usually it's something like, I received this and I give it to you. And then the creed follows. And in the Greek, it's a certain rhythm that they would use to memorize it. So we're able to identify the creeds. We have a creed in Colossians that starts with, he is the express image of the invisible God. That's, that's a creed. I think it's verse 15 through 20 in Colossians chapter 1. This is another one of those creeds. This is considered to be the earliest. And what's crazy about it is a lot of critics have said that the, the Christ, a high Christology, Jesus being God, uh, the plan of him coming for salvation, this would be called high Christology, that that was developed later on in church history, that early on you didn't have it. When this is one of the earliest creeds, and the Christology here is very high. Listen to what it says. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians in, in, in chapter 15. He's arguing for the resurrection because there are some people who are denying it. This is where Paul says in chapter 15, if Christ did not raise, then we of all people are the most pitiful, pitiable, because we live and do what we do based on the resurrection of Jesus. And we give up and we sacrifice based on that resurrection. So here's what he says talking about this creed. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. So notice, first of all, the gospel he preached, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. So there are three things you do with the gospel. The gospel is preached, you stand in it, you receive it, you are saved by it, and you hold fast to it. Those are all necessary. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. Now, why would he say that unless you believed in vain? Because it's possible to believe that God is real and to not give your life to him. The Bible in the book of James calls this a demonic faith. The demons believe and tremble. They believe in God so much they tremble, but they're not serving him. It's not enough to believe that God exists. You've got to live for him. You've got to follow him. That's what Christianity is all about. And so unless you believed in vain, how could you believe in vain? By believing in God, but not following through with it. You believe that he's there, but you're not living for him. Then he says this, for I declare to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now, this is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, according to to the scriptures. That is, it was foretold in the Old Testament that he was going to die for our sins, for our iniquity, for our transgressions several times. And then it says, and that he was buried. That's part of the gospel. He died for our sins and was buried 
and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And amazingly, the resurrection is foretold in the Old Testament. Psalm 1610, you will not allow your Holy One, the Anointed One uh, is Christ, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And other places where it says he will be cut off from the earth, he will be killed, his burial will be with the, with the wicked and with the rich, but yet he will see his days. How does the one who was cut off from the earth, whose burial was with the rich, still see his days? And that's foretold in the Old Testament. So the burial is right in the middle of this ancient creed. And so it becomes important. Now let's take a look at our text. Let's see what it says about the burial. And then I want to point out a few things about it because it says a lot of things. Luke 23, 50 through 56. Now behold, there was a man named Josephus, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision or deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So we're told a lot about him here. First of all, we're told that he is from Arimathea. Arimathea is a certain city. In the Old Testament, it's known as, I'm going to butcher this name, Ramiathim Zophim, which is the birthplace of Samuel. So Joseph Arimathea is from the birthplace of Samuel. Remember Hannah going to the temple with Eli, you know, crying out to God for a child because she was barren. And um, Elkanah saying to her, aren't I better to you than 10 childs, 10 children? And she walked, you know, kind of just, well, anyway, he got his proper response for that statement probably. And uh, she goes back home, gives birth to Samuel. When he's uh, weaned, she brings him back to the temple and dedicates him to God and he grows up in the temple. So this is where he's from. It says, uh, and we're told five things about him here. Number one, he is a council member that didn't agree with their decision. So he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's high up in the religious system in Jerusalem. We're told that he's a good and just man. Now this is really important because every once in a while, you'll say to someone, well, he, he's a good man. And they'll say to you, the Bible says no one is good but God. In, in fact, it's kind of that little, you know, taking certain passages and using them in an attack kind of a mode. Well, there's no one good but God. Well, it says Joseph of Arimathea is good. So, according to human terms, you can have good people and you can have bad people. And there are good people by human standards. That's why often when I'm giving people a chance to become a follower of Christ, I say, you may, you may be a good person, but you're not good compared to God. We're good compared to people. You can always find somebody better than you. You can always find somebody worse than you. But the real comparison is not comparing ourselves to ourselves, but comparing ourselves to God. And Joseph of Arimathea is the response. When someone says to you, just snidely, there's no one good but God, say, except Joseph of Arimathea. Luke chapter 23. Uh, he was a good man and a just man, which means he sought justice. He also had not consented to their decision. He was from Arimathea, and he, wanted, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. We learned something from Luke that he's waiting for the kingdom of God, and Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of God since the beginning of his ministry. He went everywhere preaching the kingdom of God. Many of his parables are the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells us what that kingdom of God is like. Now listen to what John, listen to John's account of the burial in John 19, 38 and 39. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. 
for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus at night, so also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh aloes of about a hundred pounds. So we learn from John that he's not alone. That Nicodemus, who Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus has got kind of snide with him. How can I enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You, your, your spirit has to be brought to life. There has to be a transformation. It's not just a decision to follow Jesus. There's an actual transformation that happens inside of us. We are born again. So he came along as well. Both of these guys are secret disciples. The death of Jesus, them taking the responsibility to bury Jesus, brought them out of their secrecy. And they could hide no longer. Now it's written down. Everybody knows that they were the ones that took care of the body of Jesus. But this is important because this is the, all the Gospels were finished within the first century. The first century would be zero to 99. The latest of the Gospels is John, finished somewhere probably around 90, 85 or 90. But in other words, all these things are written while people are still alive. The book of Mark is written just a, a, a couple of decades later. I was listening to uh, an atheist talk about the Bible, and he said, you, you got to know that, that the, some of the Gospels were written as uh, some of them a couple decades after the time of Christ. Like that was a long thing. But when you know ancient literature, you go, we have evidence that Mark was written within a couple of decades from the time of Christ, which means that when it talks about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, you could have people who would go, they're not real people. That didn't happen. If this were lies, if these were fabricated, people could point it out and make, and make it up. The details that we find in here, knowing now when they were written and fitting into the culture of their day, tells us that these events really happened. Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, well-known men of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Now, he was also a disciple of Christ but he was a disciple secretly. And it took the burial to kind of draw him out. And I wonder, as I think about this, if there's any that are secret disciples here today. You're a disciple of Christ, but you do a pretty good job of hiding it. What would it take for you to step forward, like Joseph of Arimathea, the death of, of his teacher, that he would take care of his body? He was a secret disciple. Now, he used myrrh and aloes, and we're told there's about 100 pounds of them. Remember at Jesus' birth, they brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These would become significant throughout his life. Gold, of course, royalty. Frankincense was used in the incense in the temple, and Jesus said, I am the temple. Destroy this temple, and I'll rise it up in three days. He was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so frankincense was used as the incense representing the prayers of the saints in the temple. And myrrh was used for a few purposes, for perfume, but also for embalming. And embalming in their day in the Middle East consisted of trying to cover up the odors of the body while the body was decaying. So they brought about 100 pounds of this. Someone pointed out that they could probably never smell myrrh again without thinking about taking care of the body of Jesus that they must have taken care of his body as tenderly as anyone ever has. He'd probably never been taken such good care of since his mother took care of him as a baby. 
And so they come along and they do that. Now we get back to Luke, Luke 52. This man went to Pilate, this is Joseph of Arimathea, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then they took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in the tomb that was hewn out of rock. Now, there are critics. Uh, Bart Ehrman is one of them. Bart Ehrman wrote a book called How Jesus Became God. And in that book, he says that the burial of Jesus never happened. And he uses evidence from Rome that there are accounts, and there are, there are, these are genuine accounts from Rome where it said that when someone was crucified, you left their body on the cross to decay, and when you did bury them, you didn't bury them in a family tomb, you buried them in a common tomb. So he points out, and he uses several of these legitimate sources to say that Jesus was never buried, that he would have been left on the cross, and he would have been thrown in a common tomb, and that's why you don't have his body. However, in doing that, he ignores, and, and Bart Ehrman's a New Testament scholar. He's a, he's a, a, a non-believing New Testament scholar and a critic of Christianity. And he knows there are other sources out there. It's like when you're in a trial and the, um, the, the, the one side presents its case. And then the, you get to cross-examine. And when, when they give their case, it sounds really damning. But when you cross-examine them, you realize, oh, there's a lot of holes in that. That's why you don't always listen to the first person. Because when you get the full story, you might go, oh, that's what's happening. And so there is a, the Roman kingdom was huge. And like the United States, there are different gun laws depending on what state you're in. And so to take a general statement of Rome, all of Rome, over a thousand years that there was, to find five or six statements about people being crucified and thrown in, 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 to neglect the specific area of the Middle East, to neglect the, the, the peace time, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and to neglect how they ruled and reigned is a mistake. And so you find that Josephus, Philo, some other writers spoke about that they had customs that they didn't want to upset the people in the area and that they would literally give the bodies to the family, families at certain times. It even speaks about a feast time or a celebration of a birthday of, a, of an emperor. And Philo is writing against him. And he says that at, it, was a, it was a custom to give the body of a crucified person to the family and that he didn't let it happen. He wasn't defending him. He was saying he was a bad ruler because he wouldn't let it happen. So it was such a known custom. And there are more to that. Now, Bart Ehrman's book is called How Jesus Became God. And there are four scholars that put together another book where they go over all of these details. So if you're interested in it, if you, if you hear critics or you run into atheists or there's someone who says to you, well, they didn't, even, they didn't even bury crucified people, then get the book, How God Became Jesus. Okay, Bart Ehrman's book, How Jesus Became God. These four scholars got together and wrote a book, How God Became Jesus, and they cover all of these details. They give you all of the quotes and all of the people rather than me giving them to you here. I just wanted you to have that information because there's a lot of critics out there. Sooner or later, you're going to run into them, and they'll say something to you like, they didn't even verify, uh, bury crucified people. And there's a lot more to that story, all right? So it says that he took him down and wrapped him in linen. Now, we're actually told in one place that he brought a linen cloth with him. 
When I was younger and I used to teach the burial of Jesus, I used to talk about the Middle Eastern practice of wrapping the bodies. And I'm not even quite sure where I got that from. Some commentator somewhere that I had listened to, uh, Middle East would still be, I mean, it's, it's Northern Africa, but, but Egypt is not very far. You've got the mummies there. But doing some more research now, they didn't wrap the bodies. And Joseph of Arimathea brought a linen cloth with him. It wasn't strips or cloths. It was a linen cloth, very much like the Shroud of Turin. And I'm bringing that up because there's some new evidence on the Shroud of Turin that it was, it was rejected because they had done carbon dating on it in the late 80s that came back at 1,300 years old. And then there was a lot of people that had made arguments against it. And so the guy that dated it to 1,300 years said, I'm going to get my old, you know, the old pieces of the, the, the shroud, shroud, of Turin, shroud of Turin out and I'm going to check it. And he checked it and he found out that they had made a repair on it and that 1,300 years ago, it was repaired, and you could tell the difference between the threads that were from 1,300 years ago and threads that were older. And so he dated the threads that were older and came back with anywhere from 1,300 to 3,000 years old, which will tell you how inexact the science of dating something is. There's, there's a lot more to learn than that, than just because somebody comes back with a date not to believe them. But his date, I expected to be you know, 1,300 to 3,000. It's like, wow small window there for you. But they've also done pollen samples and the, the flowers on it are from the region of Jerusalem. There's a lot of scientific evidence that's out there. Gary Habermas, Dr. Gary Habermas, who will be with us at our apologetics conference, has done a lot of work on the Shroud of Turin. And he says that it's more probable that it's real than it's not. So maybe something. We'll have a Q&A with Gary Habermas. You guys can talk to him about the Shroud of Turin. But it, it is interesting. Uh, another aspect of it is only a very, the, the actual image on it is on just a, this is from Gary Habermas, is on just a few of the strands, like a strand of thread will have a hundred, you know, substrands. I don't know what they're called. Um, that's my own word, okay, substrands. Uh, and only two or three of them have the image on it of the substrands. So it doesn't go very deep. So they know it wasn't paint. They know it wasn't powder. They know it wasn't, they, 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 they know it was being burned because it would not have been able to do it at such a light rate. They also cannot copy it. Now, all of that doesn't say the Shroud of Turin is the real Shroud of Jesus and that when he rose from the dead, there was some kind of a radiation event that made that picture of him. It's not, it doesn't mean that that's the case, but it also looks a lot more likely than it used to. It used to be we would just blow it off, but now you look at it and go, huh, maybe, maybe there actually is something to it. Something for further information. So then in verse 54, that day was the preparation day for the Sabbath that drew near. And the women who had uh, come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. It's important that they observed it because they're the ones who are going to return, see the angels and come back and say that Jesus was resurrected. So they saw where the body was. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, one more thing to consider. Matthew's account tells us a little more. So let me read through that. Matthew 27, 62 through 66. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while we were still alive, while he was still alive, how the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. 
Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal it away and say to the people, uh, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception was worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the tomb and setting the, um, and setting the guard. So sealing the tomb would mean that some kind of a seal was put on it that no one could break it unless it was by the Romans. And so Jesus was placed in there by Joseph of Arimathea and then the guard was set and he is buried. Now, Jesus is buried because he's going to partake of everything that humans do. And we will one day be buried unless the Lord comes back for us. And Jesus experienced burial. He experienced death and he experienced burial. Very humble thing to be human and to be buried. And Christ experienced that. But the Bible also tells us that we have been crucified with him, that we have been buried with him. Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 4. Or do you not know? In fact, you know what I want to do? I just want to come in. I want to read it from verse 1. We probably don't have it in the, uh, for the screen, but let me read it from verse 1, just because it gives it a little better context, okay? This is um, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? When you become a Christian, your relationship tie, your, your connection with sin, your relationship with sin, I don't know quite how to put it, changes. You were bound to sin before Christ. But now the temptation is different. There's a different relationship that we have with sin and we are better able to overcome it. So he says, certainly not. How are we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So if he's talking about water baptism, he's saying we're going under that water as a symbol that when we became a Christian, our old man died. The old woman died and we became someone new. There was such a transformation that we became new. Then it says in verse four, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. We were buried with Christ. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is not just dying for us. We die with him when we receive him, when we start to follow him, when we are born again. We, we, are, we, we die with him. So we are now a new person. And baptism is a symbol of that old man being dead and buried and walking in the newness of life. We now have the Holy Spirit in us and we walk in the resurrected power and the newness of life. It goes on to say, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So we are an entirely new person when we come into a relationship with Christ. And the relationship that we had with sin is no longer, it's changed. The Bible says, no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He doesn't let you be tempted beyond your strength. Whereas before you came to Christ, you were shown as one bound by sin. That's the way Jesus saw sinners. As, not as dirty, rotten sinners, right? But he saw people that were struggling with behavioral issues and bound by sin in chains of sin. And he came to set them free. The Son of Man has come to seek and save sinners, Jesus said himself. 
It goes on in verse 5. This is still Romans 6. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Our relationship to sin has changed. And it's different now. We have more ability to be able to resist it because we are now, we now have the resurrected power of Christ inside of us because we've become a new person. The person you used to be has died with Christ. And now, and, and Paul uses this argument in Galatians, Corinthians, and Romans to talk about us not being under the law anymore. He says, when a woman is, is, is married to a man, and if she marries another man, she commits adultery because she's alive and she's not supposed to do that. So it's adultery. But if her husband dies, she's no longer bound to the law and she can remarry another man and not commit adultery. Death sets you free from the law. If, you're, if you rob a bank and you get a car crash escaping and you die, they don't take you down before the judge anymore. They don't take you to, to jail. They don't book you, take your photos. They take you to the morgue. Why? Because being dead, the law no longer has a right over you. Now, all of us were condemned by the law. All, all of us have told a lie, have stole something, have lusted after, all of us have done it. There's none of us that haven't. We have broken the law. And so when we died with Christ, that's how we were freed from the law because our old man is dead. Now you can't condemn me anymore because the old Robert Furrow is dead. And the new Robert Furrow now lives in the, in the power of the righteousness of Christ. So we have died with him. No wonder Paul said in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live towards the Son of God. That's what it means. We are radically changed. And I think that there's, this isn't covered a lot. We don't cover the idea that we are not who we used to be. We are someone new. Colossians 2 goes into that idea as well. 2.12 says, buried with him in baptism. And this might not be water baptism. Remember, the Bible tells us that we've all been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So baptism means immerse. And you can be immersed by water or you could be immersed by the Holy Spirit. So every time you read baptism, don't think water baptism. You got to look at the setting. And so we were baptized into Christ, into his death, in which you also were raised, this is Colossians 2.12, were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him up from the dead. A little bit later on in the same chapter, he says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, now we're no longer walking in the basic principles of this world. As though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? This is back to the things of the law. He, in Colossians, they were trying to get people to live the law. And so he's saying to them, you're dead. Why are you subjecting yourself to rules like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which are perish, perishing with use according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. Galatians 3.27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So if we are baptized into the, 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 the family of God, then we put on Christ. 
It says, therefore, take off the old man and put on the new man. Romans 7, 4 says, therefore, my brethren, you also having become dead to the law through the body of Christ. This is why we're not under the law anymore. There, these people are out there that'll tell you that you're supposed to be keeping the law as a Christian. There's all these, all these passages, help us. Uh, therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may marry another. This is the analogy of the woman marrying, that you may marry another to whom was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. Now we're a new person and we bear fruit to God. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, when we, excuse me, to John 15, when we bear fruit, that brings glory to God. When I no longer live after the elements of the world or for the things of the world, but I now live my life for Christ, the fruit that, I, that is in my life brings glory to him. And the fruit that you have in your life brings glory to God as well. Now, another thing that we should say about the burial is that scriptures were fulfilled by it. Psalm 1610, you will not allow your Holy One, excuse me, let me read it to you. Psalm 1610, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Isaiah 53, 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. The place where Jesus was crucified, John tells us, was not very far away from a tomb that was in a garden. There was a garden near the place where he was crucified, and there was a tomb there that no one had laid, and it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and so they put him there. So he was with the death with his wick, uh, in his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Now, really quickly, what happened to Jesus' spirit when he died? When he was buried, what, where did Jesus go? There's a teaching out there that Jesus went to hell for you to suffer for you. That he died for you and then he went to hell and he suffered for you there so you don't have to go to hell and you don't have to suffer. What you need to know about that teaching is it is not biblical at all. There, in one of the creeds, it says, we believe that he was buried and that he descended into hell. So yes, there is a way, and we're gonna see, there is a way in scriptures where Jesus did descend into hell, but he didn't suffer for you. Why is that such a big deal that he didn't go to hell and suffer? Because Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. The picture is a death is required for sin, not suffering in hell for sin. So they rewrite what the Bible says about how salvation works to be something different. Remember the old Carmen song for those of you guys who've been a Christian for a while? And they had Carmen being held by the demons in hell. And then suddenly a light broke through and strength came out and it's just a really song, really dramatic about Jesus fighting in hell. It's a good song, but it never happened. So Psalms 16, 10 and 11, uh, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Not sure why I put that verse there, but I put it there. Let's go to 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. We're thinking about what did Jesus do after he died before he rose from the dead? 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So the Bible tells us that he proclaimed to those that were in prison, Sheol, maybe the gospel. We don't know what he preached, but he preached to those who were in prison. 
Ephesians 4, 8, 9 says, therefore, he says, what, well, when he ascended on high, he led capti captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who also descended is also one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. That is, that when men died in the Old Testament, they went to a place called Sheol. And Sheol is a very mysterious place in the Old Testament. It certainly speaks of life after death, but it also speaks of just the grave. And doesn't generally speak of hell, by the way. The word Sheol doesn't generally speak of hell. It speaks about the place of the dead. And Jesus talked about a place where the dead went in a, in a story of the rich man and the poor man. And there were some that were in torment and there were some that were being comforted by Abraham. And so the idea would be that Jesus descended into Sheol and led those that were in a, a holding place of comfort up into heaven with him. That would be the idea. So he descended, but he led them up into heaven. So yes, there is a sense by which the Bible talks about him descending into hell, but not to suffer and die, not to suffer for us. And um, they'll also get very um, intellectual about the argument. So there can be intellectual arguments about biblical things as well as biblical arguments. So the intellectual argument is, if you died, you'd go to hell to suffer. So Jesus had to die and go to hell to suffer for you. Otherwise, he didn't really die for you. But the Bible never says anything like that. And the Bible is the one who reveals to us the truth of what salvation and sanctification is all about. Now, three things in closing. Number one, we have died in Christ, so our penalty of death was paid for. I, I no longer have to pay that penalty because the person that I was has died with him. There's a very real way in which I was buried with him. And now I have newness of life. And if I die now, the grave won't keep me. Jesus said in John chapter 11 that he, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone dies, uh, if anyone, yeah, dies, he will live. And if anyone, well, anyway, it says something like that <laughs> there, which I'm butchering right now. But if anyone dies and lives and dies, then he will be resurrected. So Jesus is going to bring us back. Number two, having died in Christ, the life we now live, we live for him. We, we now are living it for Christ. No more is it ourself. This is Christianity. This isn't a, a, an extreme form of Christianity. This is what Christianity is. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. And so it's not like we're, we're giving our lives to him. It's like we died with him and then rose with him. And there was a transformation and a difference now. And the evidence is in whether or not we're living those differences. If you gave your life to Christ and you are not living any differently, then did you really die with him and rise with him? Because if you died with him and rose with him, the evidence would be in the fruit that is in our lives. This is what James meant when he said, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He wasn't saying works save you. He was simply saying they are the evidence that you've made a real genuine commitment to him. Now, when we look at it this way, I'm not surprised that some say, well, I don't know if I really want to be a Christian then. I kind of like my life. I kind of like living for me. I don't really want to live for him. 
This is why Paul said, if Christ didn't raise, we of all people are the most pitiable because we are sacrificing, especially in their day, the Roman period, they were sacrificing, but we are supposed to sacrifice in our lives and live for Christ. And that's why making a decision to become a Christian is such a serious thing because you're saying, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Jesus gave everyone an invitation to follow him. He said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, that anyone is really broad. It means you, anyone, you want to be his disciple. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Now he said that very specifically. Think about what we've been studying. We have died with Christ. We've been buried with him. We've been crucified with him. So if you are going to be his disciple, you have to die with him so the penalty of sin can no longer be applied to you because you have died and now the life that you live, you live for Christ. This isn't works. This is now the old man is dead and the new man lives for Christ. That's how your sins are forgiven. It's not like you're the same old person that now, and I use this analogy a lot, but it's not like you're the same old person with your parking validated for heaven. I'm going to go to heaven now because I raised my hand or I go to church or I said I was a Christian. No, we now follow him. We do what he said. And that's why the Bible says if anybody says they're in Christ and they don't do what Christ, what Christ said, Jesus said, if you say you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. And John wrote in 1 John, if you say you love Christ and don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. So you're, the evidence is going to be that you're living that changed life because you died to yourself and you're now living for Christ. Now, some may go, well, I never knew all that when I raised my hand. Sorry about that. I'm trying to get better at really laying things out for people when I'm giving them an opportunity to give their lives to Christ. And I expect maybe there'll be less people who respond if they know everything beforehand. If they know, look, I'm giving up my life. I'm going to be living for Christ now. There might be less people who, to respond. But my experience has been, the more I explain the sacrifice, the, the suffering, or, or the sacrifice, the suffering with Christ, the living for him, the more people respond. Maybe it's just the realness of the event. That the idea of just receiving Christ and being saved is just so, such a small part of what really happens. Yes, it's true you receive him. And yes, it's true you get saved. But there's so much more that took place. And so many people, this is where people are critical of altar calls, I think in a right way, because there's so much that happens and so many people who don't know the details of what you're asking them to do. And I don't think that the, the, the key is no longer giving altar calls. I think the key is being more informative at them, letting people know this is the commitment that you are making. Because people will give their lives to Christ, will give up, will, will uh, uh, sacrifice themselves for him, knowing that they will live with him forever. But this is the, these are the things that the Bible teaches. Having died to Christ, we no longer live under the law. We have a different relationship with sin. We have a different relationship with the devil as well, with Satan, the satanic world. If anyone is in Christ, the evil one can't touch us. So we have been set free from the satanic world and those bonds that were there. And the bonds we had with sin have changed. We're not set free completely, but we're no longer slaves to sin, is what the Bible says. All right, I've preached long enough. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray together. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep going. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to look at your word and to see here 
the truth that Christ was buried and then we'll see the resurrection and we can talk about the evidence of his resurrection. But Lord, that we have been buried with him, that we have died with Christ and the life we now live, we live to in this flesh, we live to God. And thank you that you have set us free. Thank you that you came to save sinners and that we have, we, we're, we're different people. And I pray now, Lord, that we would live as such, that we would know that we are your representatives and that none of us here would be secret disciples like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. People might ask the question, can there be secret disciples? Where the, well, there were. And so, Lord, I pray if any here are not open about you, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to, to their hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.